And again, you're listening to Community Matters. One of the first people to confirm the presence of hemlock woolly adulgid in the area was Chautauqua Watershed Conservancy Ecological Restoration Manager Tuan Leanders. He's also been involved with a number of other invasive species projects, so we checked in to find out the status of those, as well as how people can get involved in preventing the spread of invasives. We have Chautauqua Watershed Conservancy Ecological Restoration Manager Tuan Leanders on the line with us today. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. Yeah, keeping busy. It's a summer busy season. Yeah. So I just received an announcement from the Alliance about, uh, mentioned the creation of the Chautauqua Watershed Conservancy's, get ready for this one, so Aquatic Invasive Species Early Detection Volunteer Task Force. And that really caught my eye because I thought, well, what what is this task force about? Well, it's actually, it's, it's not really new. This is something that started five or six years ago, uh, originally with the Roger Perry Peterson Institute. Um, through funding from the Chautauqua Lake Watershed Management Alliance. Uh, it actually originally started with some funding um, from the state um, to start an early detection monitoring network for aquatic species, invasive species uh, in Chautauqua Lake. So we all know that we have invasive species in the lake, um, our Eurasian watermill foil and our Kernides uh, pond wheat. Um, that are creating all kinds of issues that are being addressed at all different levels. Um, but there are many other aquatic invasive species um, that have the potential to get out of hand and create all kinds of similar issues, you know, potentially choking out the waterways, um, creating all kinds of issues with, you know, dead plant matter piling up in places and causing the water quality to degrade. Um, can have an impact on the fish. It'll have an impact on the native plants that really are supposed to be in the lake. Um, so rather than just only talking about those two prevalent invasives, um, this task force is really looking for any potential newcomers. And there, there are probably about a, well, it keeps changing all the time, but at least a dozen or so other species that are already known from water bodies within, I would say, an hour and a half to two hour drive from here, 150, 200 mile radius from here. Um, species that are in other water bodies that can easily travel on uh, somebody's fishing gear, somebody's boat that goes from lake to lake. Uh, you know, fishing contests happen and equipment gets moved from water body to water body. And if you're not really careful, um, some of these species can hitchhike on your equipment, on your boat, on your fishing gear, on your waders, um, and end up being moved into new water bodies, like Chautauqua Lake, for example, and get out of control. So the, the main purpose of this task force is to do annual surveys for these um, top 10 most wanted, if you will, um, invasive species to make sure that we get eyes on early enough so that we can treat them as soon as possible before they get out of control. Mm-hmm. And in the press release, it mentioned that you that the group had done a big targeting of one particular invasive species, the water nut chestnut, uh, in, the recent, in recent weeks on the Chattaquin River. That's correct, yes. So the water chestnut is definitely one of our, our Prime concerns. It's a species that's already in several areas here in the region. I know the Audubon Community Nature Center, Big Pond, has had an infestation for years that they've been successfully treating, and they've knocked it back to a manageable level, and they're obviously still working on that. The challenge with these species is that they often stay viable. Their, their seeds stay viable for sometimes over a decade. Um, so water chestnut is a species that has the potential to blanket the entire water surface if it gets out of control. Um, and we've had a few occurrences in Chautauqua Lake in recent years that we've been monitoring that were actually found during these early detection um, on water surveys. 
And um, you know, as, as part of this project, we not only teach people what to look for and where to look for them, but we also go and look for areas where others have reported or uh, suspected um, aquatic invasive species like this water chestnut. And in this particular case, we've, we found it in the outlet uh, years ago and have been going back every year, targeted the same area to actually remove new plants that come up. So we, we've managed to keep the water chestnut population in check manually with volunteers for the last four or five years now. It started with just a few plants that were detected late in the season. Um, and at that point, they likely had already dropped their nutlets, which are you know their, their reproductive their seeds, essentially. Um, and once those are in the sediment or they flow downstream, um, or actually in the case of the water chestnut, the, the nutlets have these really horrendous spikes on them that um, attach easily on just about anything. Even if even just touching them will make them attach to your skin. Um, but they're known to also attach to the, the webbing between your toes of um, Canada geese, for example, and other waterfowl. So birds can spread these things into different areas as well. Um, so we're on the hook for a while still to keep resurveying the same areas. Even though we've removed the mature plants year after year, we're still removing the, the seeds that are re-sprouting and sprouting in, in, in the sediment there. This year alone, in the same area that we've been surveying, we're, we're getting more and more plants. I think we've removed to the order of about 250 or 300 plants so far in a few different spots. Um, but we're still able to remove them all manually with the help of volunteers, um, which is fantastic because it it means that we are doing what this task force should be doing. We're, we're detecting these invasive species early before they can multiply exponentially and become such an issue that we cannot control them anymore. Um, once you get to that point, you're going to talk about, you know, wholesale removal of vegetation, you know, mowing like the CLA is doing, or uh, herbicide treatments like COP, for example, is proposing. Um, and, and those work against invasive species, but none of these tools are specific. You're not just removing the invasive species that we're trying to get rid of, you're removing everything. And especially in the outlet and certain sections of the lake still, we have some really healthy, really beautiful uh, natural aquatic vegetation that now has these invasive species sprinkled into it. So as long as we can target these species and remove them manually, we're not negatively impacting the health of the system. We're not negatively impacting you know, the native um, vegetation that's there that supports the fish and the insects and everything that we need to keep the lake healthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, just to put a quick plug in for um, if you're listening and you want to help pull water chestnut, the uh, Audubon Community Nature Center is doing a water chestnut pull on the big pond on Saturday, July 23rd. So reach out to them if you want to uh, be engaged in that effort. So they, they like you mentioned, yeah, they do it every year and uh, just got the email from them that they, they have it scheduled for the 23rd. And yeah, it's... It, it sounds like it's something you have to keep up with just because of, like you said, when it starts dropping d- d- different nuts and stuff like that, it just can easily just keep going. Um, what else? Do, are, yeah. yeah. So besides that, I mean, we've obviously, as you mentioned, we, we hear a lot about Eurasian milfoil. We, you know, we hear about water chestnuts. What are some of the other things that you're finding as you're getting into the water systems, you know, out either in the outlet of Chautauqua Lake or in the Chadquin River? Well, there are a few species that we're concerned about. One of them is called frogbit. It looks kind of like a small water lily, and it's it's very close. I know it's also present in some of the waterways at Audubon Community Nature Center, and when you go south from there into the watershed just across the line in Pennsylvania, it's just everywhere. So it's just a matter of time before we're starting to see it 
um, in Chautauqua Lake and other water bodies as well. And it, it, it's likely already present in some places. We just don't have enough eyes on the ground everywhere to really know everything that's happening. One of the biggest concerns is hydrilla. It's a planted down south in Florida. It's just infamous for choking out waterways and inlets for power plants and dams and all kinds of stuff. It's a it's another plant that that grows really densely, really quickly. Uh, it propagates by just fracturing. Like if the plant gets chopped up into smaller pieces, every piece has the potential to grow into a new plant again. So once you get those kind of species in the lake, things can go fast really quickly. We do have two new. Um, potentially harmful invasives in the lake in the last year or so that were picked up in different surveys and have unfortunately not really triggered any alarms in terms of um, any kind of action yet. So those are two species that we're also targeting this summer to get a better handle on how widespread they are and where exactly they are so that hopefully in the next you know, year or so we can um, manage those better. One is called brittle naiad, which is... Um, a non-native, or it's, it's not a local species, but it's related to a, a different type of naiad. It's also kind of a stringy aquatic plant that has the potential to grow really quickly and also can fracture and regrow. The other one is called starry stonewort, and it's actually not a vascular plant, and just in, in, in ways that you know, plants have, have like harder structures and stems and leaves and such. This is actually a, a type of algae, a macroalgae that, you know, to the untrained eye, looks like a plant, but it's actually not... Um, structured like a plant. Um, and because of that, it, it has far less uh, physical structure to its stems and to its actual growth habit, um, which makes it a really difficult plant to remove. It's it's just kind of floppy, and um, you can't really pull it like we've been doing with other invasive plants. Um, so the only way to treat that if it does get out of control would be likely to use chemical means. Um, there really is no good manual way to remove this. Even the mowers wouldn't uh, do anything for it. Um, there are some underwater suction devices, like underwater vacuum cleaners, essentially, that you could potentially use to remove these kind of plants. Well, not plants, algae. Um, but uh, we don't really have a good enough handle on the actual scale of the infestation yet to know whether that's still feasible or whether we need to go beyond that and look for chemical means to, to treat these these invasives at this point. So this summer, too, we're hoping to be out. We're, we have surveys scheduled almost every two weeks, um, and we encourage people to get involved and, and be trained. Um, just like everything in nature, um, the more everybody is informed and the more people know what to look for and where to report it, the easier it makes our job because we know where to go and where to look. Uh, there just are never enough people out of the lake or on land to look for all these invasives. Um, so usually by the time they get detected, um, they're at a very detectable level, which means that often they're already so widespread that it becomes really difficult to still treat them at that point. Um, so I very much encourage anybody who has an interest in the health of the lake to come in and join one of our surveys. We have another one coming up um, Wednesday, July 20th, um, leaving from a great point at 1 o'clock in the afternoon. You can find more information on the Chautauqua Watershed Conservancy's website for future survey dates as well. Um, but the whole idea about this program is not just to have a limited number of people out there looking, but to really inform the public and, and create opportunities for the public to, to be educated about the hazards of um, aquatic invasive species and to give them the tools to be active participants in, in fighting these, these um, invaders. 
And when it comes to, you know, the invaders, some people may look at and say, well, it's green, it grows, it must be good. But what is, what I mean, when it comes down to these invasives versus, versus what we call the native plants, why, what is the importance in getting rid of the invasives? Right. Yeah, that, that's a very good question. And there's so many different ways to, to look at these kind of issues. Like, obviously, nature is very dynamic. Things are never the same in nature. Things change all the time. So there's so many proponents who say, well, this is just a new normal. Let's just, you know, let the pieces fall where they fall and just see how things kind of reshape themselves over the next whatever centuries or whatever time frame you would like to think about. Things in nature just don't happen quickly normally. So the the, the fact that these um, non-native species are being moved around um, at a, at a pace far faster than was ever possible is sort of a challenge. So the fact that people can move their boats from fishing tournament to fishing tournament, for example, you know, that that facilitates the transfer of plants that otherwise wouldn't leave. You know, these are plants that live in water bodies. And like I mentioned, the the, the nuggets of the uh, water chestnut have these spikes on them that can attach themselves to waterfowl. That's how they could spread it potentially from water body to water body. But in most cases, aquatic species, especially um don't leave the water so they just kind of spread through the watershed and unless these different watersheds are connected somehow these species don't jump from lake to lake they can't um so human intervention really has sped up the the spread of these species and you know not every non-native species is invasive but by definition an invasive species is a species that has a noticeable significant detrimental impact either economically or biologically, on the area that it arrives in, which usually means that it's out-competing native species. It's In most cases, these are species that are colonizers. They, they arrive in an area, they tend to have a longer growing season so that they can get started sooner and leave out before other species, native species, can do so. Um, they're competing for resources with native species. And because they're not species that have been there for a long time, they don't really have a good connection in the local ecosystem, in the local food web, if you will, or whatever connections there are with other plants and animals. Because in, in general, everything that grows natively here is connected to other microorganisms and plants and animals. You know, you've got specific birds that eat specific fruits. You've got specific butterflies that lay their eggs on specific plants. So if that diversity, that sort of really um, intimately connected gets interrupted by a single species or two or three species that are really aggressive growers that basically eliminate the native species that are uh, that are supposed to be in our local environments, then those kind of impacts, that the disappearance of these native species snowballs through the ecosystem. So other species that rely on these other plants, for example, become impacted as well. So that's why these invasive species are so important, and that's why it's so important that we try to prevent their spread as much as possible, because we're, you're right, we're, we're going to end up with, you know, an environment that still looks green to the untrained eye. Um, there's still plants and animals. Um, but if we let these species run their course, we're going to end up with a very um, impoverished ecosystem instead of a, a, a healthy biodiversity of um, resilient species that are adapted to our climate and provide all the benefits to our environment, we're going to end up with a small handful of invasive species that just take up all of the ecological spots in the network here. 
Mm-hmm. And, and it happens everywhere. These are yeah. species that actually are found all over the world. So what you're already seeing is that you know we're, we're almost homogenizing the planet at this point. You can go to any urban environment on the planet pretty much, and you're going to find Norway rats and pigeons and house sparrows and starlings. You know, these, these kind of environments that are so impacted by human behavior only allow for very adaptable species to survive. So, so our, our native areas that used to harbor all these really localized species are all being replaced by a handful of sort of trashy, adaptable species that are everywhere on the planet. So we're, we're losing a lot because of these invasives. Right, and I think uh, it was like a human invasive, but the Bradford pear tree as an ornamental was one I've, I've seen used as an example over and over of you know a non-native species that has been become prevalent in neighborhoods across the United States. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, like I, I look out my backyard in the springtime. I look out my my kitchen window, and um, there's privet just coming in from all sides, and it's the first thing that greens up in the winter. You know, it's all like gray and bleak outside and you're excited for the first signs of spring and things start to green up and the first things that green up is this wall of privet that just every year keeps marching closer to my yard and it's just everywhere and it's mm-hmm. there's nothing wrong in, in, in principle with privet it's beautiful it's got nice little flowers on it it smells good and it has all these berries on it in the winter that the birds love to eat because there's not a whole lot else left but that's how these plants operate the, the fact that they have these berries left in the winter and the birds eat them unfortunately the birds don't get enough nutrition out of the berries from these privets because they don't provide a lot of nutrition. Um, so the birds are forced to eat more. And uh, the privets are competing all the native plants, so the birds don't have a choice anymore. So privet is actually keeping itself in play by providing the only food around. It's like it's like fast food. It's like junk food for, for birds. They're forced to eat these berries all winter, and they just spread them all over the world, of course. So these, these plants are just, you know, they're, they're admirable, admirable in a way in that they're so successful at how they manage to spread, which you know, in, in many biological senses is like a sign of success, right? Um, they're just a little too good at it. Mm-hmm. And speaking of things that are too good at surviving, despite maybe people's intentions, uh, we, we've talked about Tree of Heaven, and uh, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you've been charged by the Jamestown City Council now, they've even provided money to the CWC to help deal with this on the Chattacoin River, and I'm talking about an invasive where we're like, yeah, that could take over the river. There's also wider implications beyond just, you know, the Tree of Heaven itself as, a, as its own tree, and and another invasive pest that likes to feed on it, and it's it's this whole like you know wonderful like you know swirl. And I wouldn't call it wonderful, but that's this bad word. But it's a whole swirl of you know potential disaster, and you know in terms of mm-hmm. um, what's happening naturally and uh, and how it affects other agriculture in at least in Chautauqua County and elsewhere. So what what is the latest with Tree of Hen? Because I think the last time we talked. Um, or we heard from you that city council was working on making sure that that they got the funding to the CWC and you had a very short window of opportunity where you were hoping to, to get out and deal with this. So what is, what is happening with it right now? Um, yeah, absolutely. So city council did award the funding and it's, it's, um, it's there. Uh, we have a contractor lined up to get going. Uh, we've, um, added one more stand of tree of heaven that we recently added to the project area. So um, I think we've got them all mapped in at this point. Um, at, at this point, I'm waiting for DEC permission. I'm waiting for permits to actually do the application of the herbicide. So once the DEC permits are available, 
Um, the actual first round of application of the herbicide on the trees will happen as soon as possible after that. Um, so that should really make a big difference. I think the first year treatments should kill most of the trees. Um, it's never perfect, so there will be some survivors. So there's clearly additional um, follow-up needed there as well, just like us with the water chestnut. These, these trees just have been dropping seeds for years already, so we'll be working on this for quite some time. So City Council has generously offered um, the funding for the year one treatment, which is the initial round of chemical treatments to, um, to at least stop the spread of the Tree of Heaven and kill the ones that we have in the community right now. Um, and I'm currently working with the city and with various other stakeholders in the region and with the Chautauqua County Soil and Water Conservation District to put together um, a large um, state grants application, which is due at the end of this month, that will hopefully pay for future years of follow-up treatment of the Tree of Heaven, as well as um, initial um, removal of additional invasives that we find along the Chautauqua River Corridor. Mm-hmm. And uh, watching the news, I think I want to say it was maybe um, somewhere in central New York, possibly even Monroe County. I saw that spotted lanternfly that they may have found one up that way, which that was the biggest one of the bigger concerns, not just because Tree of Heaven can you know, reproduce so easily once if you if you cut into it, but also because the Tree of Heaven was the host for the spotted lanternfly, which also mm-hmm. likes grapevines. So, yeah. uh, so that yeah, was like, so good. yeah, it was one of those things that, you know, we didn't want to see the, the trees multiplying along and, and choking at everything on the river front, but we also, there was a concern about protecting other agriculture. So it sounds like you've got to make good, are, are on the process of making good headway toward the event, preventing that. We are. Yeah. We've had some conversations at the county level too. And with uh, Cornell Cooperative Extension, because obviously they've got some serious concerns about, you know, our grape, our, our, our grape industry here as well. Um, and actually, tomorrow I'm receiving um, some additional um, spotted lanternfly traps from the uh, Western New York Prism, the Partnership for Regional Invasive Species Management, which is an entity based out of Buffalo, uh, Buff State, um, who um, is they're, they're one of the coordinators for invasive species management in the region here. It's a great partner. They're also involved with the water chestnut removal, and I actually had several conversations with them in the last few days about the other invasives in the lake as well. Um, they're, they're rolling out a program. There was a program earlier by APHIS, the federal the, um, uh, Fish and Wildlife uh, Departments for Agricultural Pests, um, Early Detection. They had some traps out in Jamestown, actually, to, um, to look for the first spotted lanternflies coming in. Those traps have been out for two years and have not caught any spotted lanternflies yet, but you're right, there's some ones and two showing up here and there. I think there was a report from Tonawanda the last week or two. Um, they're, they're starting to get closer and closer from all sides. So Western New York Prism is actually um, making available traps to um, to actually detect the first wave of spotted lanternflies. Um, so I'm working with them on some other places too. There's some other isolated um, tree of heaven trees that are of the right size that they could potentially attract spotted lanternflies. So we're hoping to roll out these traps in the next few weeks and get decent coverage in the region just to kind of have a better sense of how bad things are getting and how quickly we can get ahead of it. Um, yeah, there hasn't really been a, a, a region-wide survey of the tree of heaven um, the way we've done here in Jamestown. And they're, they've these trees have been around for a long time. I, I've seen reports of like dating back to the 1700s. So I'm assuming this is something that came in with the early colonists that just brought black species that 
just to make things look like home, right? They brought mm-hmm. the starlings and the sparrows and all these things. Um, and the the trees grow in the most impossible soils and conditions. So it's it's long been thought to be a plant that could be planted in areas where nothing else grows anymore because of you know the impact that we've had on the soils, for example. Uh, just the same way that originally Japanese knotweed was promoted as an erosion control <laughs> plant that was actually promoted by the government to, to put in all kinds of areas along rivers to protect the soils and the banks. And now we're frankly trying to get rid of it because it just doesn't do that. It just gets out of control and stops the stuff that we want to grow from growing there. Mm-hmm. Um, so our perspectives change. Our, our, you know, our, our, our ability to handle these kinds of situations changes over time, too. But you know, in, in the reality really is, especially in, in the case of the Treaty of Heaven, is that we're, you know, we're clearly two centuries behind the the eight ball here. So the tree of heaven in itself was a problem, but now suddenly with the arrival of spotted lanternfly a few years ago in the United States, we suddenly are multiplying the impact of these these pests. So it's another reason why it's really, it behooves us to, to get ahead of these invasives. You, know, you might think, oh, it's just another green tree and we can just let it run wild because it doesn't seem to be doing anything. But then, you know, fast forward two centuries, suddenly another invasive comes in that just piggybacks on that. And exacerbates these problems we just we just don't know what these invasives can do to our ecosystems so um going native is always the better option here and and promoting native species and trying to eliminate any kind of non-native species that have the potential to become invasive and have negative economic or biological impact is always the way to go right and if, uh, again, you mentioned it, Wednesday, July 20th at 1 p.m., if people want to help with the Aquatic Invasive Species Early Detection Stat, that you'll be at McRae Point Park for that. Uh, and I think, I assume if they go to, is it ChautauquaWatershed.org for the website to learn more? Correct, yeah. And um, so these are on-water surveys. So anybody who is interested in joining us um, is uh, is encouraged to bring their own kayak or canoe. We don't at the moment have, on the short term at least, uh, additional kayaks available. We do have some program equipment, but I'm not sure if we can get that mobilized by next week already. But um, anybody with an interest in, in participating in these surveys, um, feel free to contact the Stockwell Watershed Conservancy, and uh, we'll hook you up. Great. Anything else you'd like to add? Um, no, it's been great. I think there's there's a great information out there as well through other partners that are working on uh, certainly keeping eyes on, on Stockwell Lake. Um, I think one of the best programs that we have right now is the boat stewards that are um, working through Stockwell Lake Association um, to to inform boaters who are putting their boats into Stockwell Lake to be aware of these invasive hit- hitchhikers and to um, clean their equipment and clean their boats before they do so. So I greatly encourage anybody who moves the watercraft around from water body to water body to just be very diligent about that. You know, it's it, uh, these species are never really spread on purpose, um, but a quick hosing of your boat and a quick check of your, um, your ballast tanks and your equipment and just a, a quick scrub down to make sure that you don't have any green things attached to your boat when you're pulling it out of a lake and putting it in a different lake can prevent millions of dollars in damage down the road uh, and lots of effort. So it, it's something that you know, these, these, these challenges are so big sometimes that I, I, I totally understand why people just don't even know how to get involved because it just seems too big for any one of us. 
Um, but the reality really is that all of us play a role in this, and we all have a chance to to be better stewards of our environment. So little things like that, like checking your fishing gear, checking your waders, checking your boat before you go from water body to water body, is hugely helpful. So um, I encourage anybody to do so. Mm-hmm. And like they say, sometimes it's the little things that really do matter. So They really do. They absolutely do. Mm-hmm. Well, Tuan, thank you so much for, for taking time to talk about this uh, important issue with us. And uh, I'm sure we'll be catching up with you in the near future again. 